Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm delighted today to be joined by a good friend and colleague here at CSIS, Matt Goodman. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for making time to be with us. Nice to be here. Thanks, Steve. Matt's a senior vice president for economics and holds the Simon Chair in Political Economy at CSIS. I enlisted him to come and speak about the recently concluded G7 Hiroshima Summit. Matt has uh, very long and deep ties to Japan, reaching back all the way to three decades ago. Uh, four. Four decades ago when you served in the U.S. Treasury Department, but you've kept that link throughout in all the different iterations in your career, working at Albright Stonebridge Group, working at different White House positions that had gave you responsibilities over summiting and Asia. And so this is great. Um, so I want to start not on the health outcomes. We'll get to that later. What I wanted to get you to describe for us is what were the top line outcomes? There were some dramatic developments coming out of this G7. And let's start with those. Yeah. Well, thanks, Steve. Delighted to be here. Um, usually the word dramatic is not associated with G7 summit. So I think that's maybe the first thing to say, which is that, um, you know, it's easy to be cynical about these uh, these gatherings of, of world leaders, which produce, you know, lengthy communiques and and a lot of talk and photo ops, but not a lot of concrete action. But I do think that this year's summit in Hiroshima was a little more uh, significant than many of these summits. Um, in part because of obviously the drama around President Zelensky's uh, surprise visit to Hiroshima, and uh, obviously Ukraine was a was a major focus of the leaders' discussions anyway. But that added an extra sort of icing on the cake, as it were, of those discussions and some significant developments around that, which I can come back to. But I also think it was significant because of the other side meetings that were going on. The the Korea Japan meetings were quite. I think dramatic, again, is the right word. The two leaders, President Yun and Prime Minister Kishida, visited the memorial to Korean victims of Hiroshima. That would have been unthinkable. Unthinkable, frankly, weeks earlier, let alone, you know, let alone the previous G7 or years before. What do you think the meaning of that is will be in the long term? I mean, they've been people have been trying to encourage the Koreans and the Japanese to do something exactly of this site for years yeah, and I'm not sure that the underlying uh, problem has been entirely uh, removed. I mm-hmm. think there's still going to be some awkwardness around this rapprochement, but there's no question it's been a, quite a significant move by both uh, Japan and Korea to come together and put not put behind uh, the past or history. There's a lot of sensitivity there, but to say we need to work forward and not look back all the time, and there's so much that the, these two countries, two allies of the United States, share in their interests and their values and their concerns about North Korea, about China, 
that uh, it just uh, they realized, I think, both leaders that they need to put aside for now uh, these these difficult tensions and and work on a yeah. positive agenda together. So so I do think that was one of the sort of unexpected outcomes of, of this summit that are significant. You know, within the within the room itself, uh, there was a lot of discussion of Ukraine and, and some new developments. And as you know, uh, on sanctions towards Russia, on provision of fighter jets to Ukraine, U.S. training, U.S. training of pilots, which was announced right before, right? Right, exactly, and more uh, economic assistance. So a lot of uh, a lot of Ukraine, I'd say that probably was the top headline from the actual discussions themselves. But then, uh, you know, a lot of discussion around the global economy, everything from food security to health security challenges, climate change, concerns about inflation. There's, as usual, a robust, broad uh, economic agenda there um, that was discussed. And for me, one of the most significant things was the uh, separate statement on economic resilience and economic security. This was the first time that at the international level, anybody had tried to define this uh, new term economic security. And we can talk more about that if, if you want. But then there were significant developments on, as always, on global health. Uh, we can talk more about that on development on a range of, of uh, longer term global challenges that the G7 has always had something to say about. So do you think it's fair to say that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're now in the second year, has elevated the G7 to back into a very relevant position as an alliance. It's breathed a lot of energy and into it. It has resulted in a remarkable level of unity and resolve in the part of the G7 members versus fracturing or, you know, vague sort of considerations. It's really created something that you know, we G7 was looking to drift into irrelevance, and this is making it right at the very center of this first major ground war in Europe in over 70 years. Would you agree with that? And does that have other spinoff benefits? Does that, does that then make other things possible? Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree with that. You know, when the G7 was founded in the mid-70s, it was to deal with an immediate um, set of economic-related crises um, you know, from the end of the Smithsonian dollar system to the, uh, the energy shock. And, uh, and it was quite important to get these seven largest advanced industrialized economies together to discuss these real uh, critical issues. And it, it had some impact and added other issues over time, some of which over time has been helpful, including, by the way, on global health. That was one of the issues that the, the Japanese took up, you know, right. 20 years ago or something. And, and it's, they've had something important to say about that at, at some sense. But you're right, in the last decade, and actually very specifically uh, since the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, when the G20 was elevated to leaders level, uh, the, the Obama administration very explicitly said the G20 is now the premier forum for international economic coordination. And that really by default or sort of by implication downgraded the G7 as an institution. And so for a decade plus, the G7 had really been drifting. And of course, during the Trump era, Trump famously, you know, didn't attend a couple of G7 meetings and was quite disruptive when he did. So people thought the G7 was dead. But then, you know, I think you're right. Ukraine last year, that invasion by um, Russia really touched consciences and policy interests and caused 
this group of, you know, they're still the seven largest advanced industrialized democracies. You know, they felt a real impulse to get together uh, that was sort of surprising at the time, but now seems like, oh, yeah, no, this group has really got something to say about this, uh, this violation of the international order that they've championed for so long. I mean, it delivered several powerful and very specific messages about the war in Ukraine over and beyond announcing, OK, the F-16s are coming to Ukraine, loaned or loaned or given by some of the neighboring states with training provided on a crash basis by the United States, Ukrainian pilots. But it also registered that support of the war crimes investigations. It put in place new sanctions. It made clear that there was going to be continued expansion of the uh, security assistance. It, on the health front, was very explicit at the very top end of the communique about the G7 is going to be at the center of the reconstruction of the health sector in Ukraine. No small sort of commitment. And it's all coming on the eve of the summer counteroffensive. So, you know, the fact that they were turning their sights at Moscow and serving up message after message after message in a very striking and strong way was quite significant. It's quite extraordinary. And I think that it is, it shows that actually there is, there is really no substitute for getting these countries that uh, do have a shared set of values and interests and are particularly feel a sense of responsibility for pre preserving the international rules-based order, you know, they were offended deeply and many other adjectives could be described to describe the reaction by this illegal and unprovoked uh, invasion of a, of a country on European soil. I think Europe in particular moved. Um, you know, we've been having uh, the U.S. and Europe love each other, but we have difference of views on a lot of the things that are on the uh, traditional G7 agenda. But this really, I think, woke Europe up in a way that realized, you know, we need to be with the U.S., with Japan, with other, with Canada, with other allies who have similar views. And um, and yes, you asked earlier, I do think it allows other things that were not thinkable before um, across this agenda, because once you get the wind in your sails, you know, the, this is a group that that has a problem they're trying to solve. Uh, they've got shared interests, different perspectives and different different experiences, but they can bring this together to get that done then it means, why can't we do a bunch of other things? And so I think you saw some of that in, uh, throughout the, the G7 outcomes, that there was a, a new sense of possibility for you know, issues from food security to global health to, to economic security. Let's talk a little bit about China, because some of what was in the communique was equally dramatic in talking about China. The message was loud and clear that they were adopting this kind of formulation that Ursula von der Leyen had been pushing about. We are not decoupling. We are diversifying and de-risking from China. That message came through loud and clear repeatedly. It was like, you know, the harmony of the G7. There was no dissent on that point. Quite interesting how fast things had moved to that set of positions and trying to understand, well, what does that mean? Then you had this Commitment on economic coercion. Economic coercion became the, the watchword of the day and a, a new entity, a coordination platform on economic coercion. What are they talking about? <laughs> well, first of all, the famous paragraph 51 of the Hiroshima communique, and I guess I shouldn't admit that I've 
no paragraph numbers that shows I'm paying a little too much attention. But but it was seriously it was a significant paragraph in laying out a, a, a set of, I think, nine bulleted yeah. issues vis-a-vis -vis China. I don't I'm confident that has never been done before to have one country so identified with such an articulated set of both concerns and also reassurances. It starts by saying, you know, we are not trying to decouple. We're not. We are de-risking. Uh, we don't want to stop China from growing or developing. Uh, we want to engage. But we have a range of concerns from economic coercion to human rights to China's behavior in, in international waters and so forth. So there are a shared set of concerns. And I, again, don't think that this uh, coming together of, of U.S., Europe, Japan, Canada would have been possible uh, on something like China a year or two ago. I think this was really partly prompted by Ukraine um, and China's um, still careful but present support for Russia in this conflict. And that, that I think, raised real concerns in Europe that sort of thought China was just a pot of gold or an economic opportunity, but didn't realize actually there, there's an implication for China's. And, and the Chinese, just in the lead up to the, to the Hiroshima summit, you know, in the six, eight weeks before that, the Chinese had unleashed a very aggressive campaign at the highest levels in Europe. Yep. They were visiting. And then you had Macron pay his visit. You had, you had the German delegation go out to Beijing. So there was this effort at really trying to woo the Europeans away from a tough U.S. alignment. And it failed. Someone had a great line the other day that China's on a charm offensive, but it's more offensive than charming <laughs> to yeah. to Europe. They they can't help themselves. They they keep doing things that really cause you know deep concern in in Europe, like you know sanctioning members of the European Parliament or uh, or fellow think tanks, by the way, in Berlin. And so China's trying to woo Europe, but then their leaning into Russia has really caused. Um, some some concerns in Brussels and, and other capitals. So that is an issue that has, I think, led to that paragraph 51 being possible. Um, you asked about coercion. As you know, we wrote a, a put, published a, a big report in the CSS economics program back in March on uh, countering China's economic coercion. Uh, this is an issue that has received not just attention here at CSIS, but around the world um, over the last couple of years. Uh, we went back about a decade or so looked at eight cases of Chinese coercion and found this pattern of a persistent sort of low level but persistent um, pressure that China puts on neighbors and, and more distant countries from Japan, rare earths in 2010, to Lithuania today um, because of an offending sign on a door about a Taiwanese representative office in Vilnius. And there is a strong, I think, distaste for this behavior by China among the G7 countries, and they decided they were going to say something about it, uh, both in the communique, the main communique itself, and in that separate statement on economic security. It was a centerpiece. Honestly, a lot of this has been driven by U.S. Ambassador to Tokyo, Rahm Emanuel. Mm -hmm. So uh, he, he's been on, a, on a, a real campaign here to, to get economic coercion uh, highlighted and to get the G7 to uh, come together to try to develop a counter strategy. So in a way, it wasn't surprising that on in a Japan-based G7 that this would be front and center. Now, I want, to, I want to talk about two other things. One, the quad, the quad which got moved to into the program in a way with the change of the president's travel plans. And also the Japanese rhetorically were claiming that this was really going to be a G7 summit that made a much bigger effort 
to have the, the Global South represented. When I looked at the roster of people who showed up, yes, there were people from the Global South. The only African representative was Comoros, which is in the presidency of the African Union at the moment. Which they were there representing the regional body. But you didn't have Nigeria, you didn't have South Africa, you didn't have any. It's an interesting sign, not of lack of intent by the Japanese and when we're talking about Africa, but simply the fact that South Africans just got caught shipping Russian weapons through Cape Town, and the Nigerians are the Nigerians are in a chaotic transition, and Ethiopia is a mess. I mean, there, there's other places we could could have gone, but the Japanese relationship with Africa is largely structured through the TCAD program, which is every five years, and back and forth. And Kenya has a special spot. Ghana has a special spot. Neither of them were there. Right, right. Um, no, you're right that Japan, uh, Prime Minister Kishida, wanted to make outreach to the Global South a, a, a central theme of this year's G7 summit. They did invite you know, eight other countries, as you mentioned, uh, Comoros representing the African Union. Um, they also invited Brazil, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, um, and Cook Islands to represent yeah. the uh, Pacific Island Forum. And uh, this was, I mean, that was significant because I always say these summits do have value, even if they don't actually solve a problem <laughs> or problems, uh, bringing leaders together uh, to get to know each other better, to discuss um, common problems, share best practices. I think there's value in that and people underestimate that. But if you think about any leader, they're pretty lonely people. They don't get a chance to really interact with their peers very often. Mm -hmm. So I think there was probably some value in, in having a whole day worth of conversations with that extended group. But you're right. It didn't extend to every important economy around the world. It didn't solve you know, all the problems that the global South is concerned about. Um, I'm guessing that you know many representatives of the global south that they were paying attention at all felt that the the g7 didn't deliver any a lot of tangible outcomes for them but i think it was certainly you know in recent years one of the more um, significant efforts to try to um, show the the rest of the world that this mm -hmm. isn't just about a bunch of rich countries getting together to talk about their own problems but to try to um, you know address global problems and that's where you know development and health and climate uh, agenda come into play. Say a bit about the Quad. So the Quad, you know, this grouping of the U.S., Japan, uh, India, and Australia, which was formed after the um, tsunami, actually back in 2004 in the South mm -hmm. uh, in the Indian Ocean, because these four countries have really significant naval capabilities, and that's what really brought them together to provide um, humanitarian relief following that that terrible disaster. Um, but it's evolved into this forum that is now uh, talking about, you know, broader security issues and now economic issues as well. In the last couple of years, they've added an economic sort of leg to the quad yeah, discussion. Involved in the vaccine production, and they, of course, the vaccine issue is a big one um, because of, in particular, India's you know, yeah. position in that world, which you understand much better than I do. Um, but yes, the president was meant to, President Biden was meant to go to Australia for a, a leaders meeting of the Quad in Australia because of the debt ceiling uh, debacle here in the U.S. He had to come back early uh, and therefore didn't do two things. He didn't go to the Quad and he didn't go to Papua New Guinea, which was also significant, I think, even in Quad terms, because because the, I, there is an effort in that grouping to try to reach out to some of these Pacific Island countries. And, and that was a real loss. 
not to be able to go there, although Secretary Blinken went and signed a new new arrangement with with them, which is significant. But the Quad has done some important things on vaccines. It's done things on uh, infrastructure investment. That's been a central mm-hmm. uh, focus there. It's working on technology uh, cooperation as well. Um, so in addition to the really still, I think, central theme of maritime security, which is still underwriting a lot of the Quad's um, raison d'etre, they, they have taken on these other issues. And, and I think, you know, it's a significant forum. You know, where, where I think all four countries want to try to make more tangible progress across that agenda going forward. How do you think the Japanese felt at the end of all of this? I think Kishida felt pretty good. He he got, first of all, there were no disasters there. That's always the thing. A, a host of, of a summit like this um, worries about, like, if President Biden had not come, that would have been a disaster from Kishida's point of view. So I'm sure he was very relieved the president thought this was important enough to come. Um, I'm sure he felt good about the the external events like Zelensky's visit, like the Korea, Japan, and the broader leaders' uh, visit to the fact that They went to Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and put such a focus uh, historically on disarmament, nuclear. For disarmament. him, you know, Kishida is from Hiroshima, and so this is a personal matter to him. And and the focus on, as you say, nuclear disarmament was. By the way, I didn't mention it when I was going through the list of of significant outcomes. That was a very prominent. Uh, issue as well on the agenda. Yeah, no, I think he probably felt good about all of that. And then, you know, within the meetings themselves, there were some, um, you know, some good discussions and, you know, decent outcomes. Again, when I'm answering cynical views about these summits, which is understandable, those views, I, I say that, you know, it's not just about solving problems, although that is the ultimate ideal. It's also setting an agenda. So I think, I think he should have probably feels good that, that they set some of these uh, broad agenda items, uh, including on, you know, in my space, economic security, but also on, you know, on development on global South outreach and so forth. So I think, I think he probably feels pretty good about it. Well, we'll talk in a minute about the health items. And of course, universal health coverage is very dear to Japanese policymakers and to prime minister's office has been for a long time. And they achieved quite a bit, I think, on that, on that score. Say a bit more about that in a moment. I mean, the the health work, uh, which you kindly participated in some discussion of this back on March 16th when we met. I mean, they, the Japanese had signaled early on that they wanted the G7 to rally around three things. Promotion of universal health coverage and seeing it as a, as a, as a health security matter, seeing it as something that was uh, ripe for much closer alignment with the United States and others. It's been a source of tension in the past, the United States in this case. United States, Atul Gawande, Samantha Power, others have lined up in really strong support. There was really progress in advancing and aligning U.S. action and priorities around what what has really been a Japanese-led agenda. Then the global health architecture, which gets us into a whole array of different items of diplomacy, the pandemic treaty, but also the pandemic fund, which is new. President Biden, in his press statement, the first thing he hit on in his press statement was we are committing $250 million of additional resources. In their budget for 23, they've asked for $500 million. So he wasn't waiting around for budget action. They've already committed $450 million to the original $1.6 billion to get the fund going. The fund has been stood up in a one-year's time plan, very unusual. People are dissatisfied it doesn't have 
10 billion in the bank, which is probably more of what is required. But nonetheless, U.S. leadership is moving. And I think what he was trying to do there was nudge the other G7 members around this agenda by saying, look, we came with 250. And they're pointing everyone, they're using the G7, point everyone to the fall, to the UN General Assembly. There'll be a high-level meeting on pandemic preparedness and response. There'll be a high-level meeting on universal health care. So this G7, in a way, was a rehearsal and a way of getting more action and energy around those things that are going to get carried forward further. R&D is the third area of is accelerating cooperation and investments in the research and development of new countermeasures, vaccines, therapies, diagnostics, better PPE. And that's consistent with U.S. policy. It's consistent with what the G7 under the Germans and others were putting forward. So overall, I think that this was a systematic, in-detail review of quite a number of things that are in development and moving forward. We won't see the pandemic treaty completed for another year. So they didn't, they endorsed it. They said this must go forward, but there wasn't much to talk about on this, right? The pandemic fund is getting stood up. It's going to give out its first grants soon. It needs more money. Okay, let's acknowledge and let's let's put a little bit more in there. Antimicrobial resistance got three paragraphs. It signaled that the Japanese had shifted. The Japanese were very resistant at making AMR a priority, and they've changed course uh, internally within their government. They've changed course, and this G7 roll-up was a factor in that. Yeah. No, this is, uh, I mean, you know, you're the expert on health, so I don't really have anything to add what you said, but just as a layman looking at it, first of all, I did notice that President Biden mentioned it first in his press conference. That strikes me as pretty significant, the pandemic fund. And yes, I think by doing that kind of thing, a U.S. president puts pressure, peer pressure, on his uh, counterparts to to sort of ante up as well. And then the other point that you're alluding to is really that even if there was not a huge amount of progress on any particular one of those strands, again laying those things out in in the leaders' communique and really telling the respective bureaucracies in each of these governments, uh, you know, these are priorities. And, and by the way, outside stakeholders as well. These are the priorities. These are the things that we think are important to do gives a lot of then hooks for follow-up efforts across this wide agenda. So, so I think it was significant in that way. Now, we mentioned earlier that there was an embrace very early in the communique, very early in the health statement around reconstruction health sector in Ukraine. There was also in the health communique a very strong statement at the, at the front end about violence against the health sector in Syria, in, in Ukraine. And elsewhere. And for those of us who've worked on those issues over the years, this was quite significant. To have that sentiment embedded in such a prominent place was important. And then a couple of other things that didn't happen. There was a tiny little paragraph in very dull language about the COVID origin controversy. Did not even name China. So there was this was a very deliberate decision to just kind of not bang away at that particular quagmire and focus when you went back and looked at those detailed issue items under paragraph 51, there's a little reference, but they're moving on. There's a compartmentalization happening. 
about we want to engage China on minerals and batteries and microchips and diversify and de-risk in these highly sensitive areas. We're not hanging up our cooperation or our dialogue with them on many of these matters because of this COVID origin stalemate. And that was that was an interesting de facto kind of point. The connection between climate and health in the document was very weak. And I was really surprised. I thought there would have been more action taken in that because there's been a big shift of consciousness around those issues in the last year or two. And I thought that it would have worked its way in, but it, but it didn't. Yeah, no, I, I think overall the climate element of this was affirmative of, of pre-existing kind of streams of work and Paris Accord and so forth, but but a little bit less new stuff or more advanced progress, including that that point about climate and health. There was the the section on World Bank reform, which yes. which does get at some of those issues, the shift of yeah, emphasis or the ad- addition of focus on global public goods, um, including those issues, climate and health. So maybe that's where the energy was being channeled. One other thing, and then I, I want to shift to the last question around what, what's going to happen with Italy. But one other health matter, the Global Health Emergency Corps, which is a concept that WHO has embraced and is going to lead on, got a mention in the health communique, that this deserves serious consideration. Six, eight weeks back, both the U.S. and the Japanese weren't really focused on this topic and weren't pushing it, and it wasn't clear where they were. So there was some movement there, and it helped because a few days later at the World Health Assembly, both China and the U.S. spoke at a side event for the Global Health Emergency Corps, which is this proposal for a network of leaders, the operators, the senior level ranks that are responsible for responding to dangerous outbreaks. And it's a good idea. And it's one that both the Chinese and the Americans spoke at the site of that in Geneva a few days later. And this idea will probably be formally launched in the fall, perhaps at the UN General Assembly. But this concept is evolving and the Japanese have migrated to support it, which was great, which was great. And the U.S., and the Chinese. So I thought that was interesting. Let's close with, you know, what can we expect from the Italian presidency? Well, Italy has been a member of the G6, actually, uh, since the very beginning when they were not invited to the, uh, the French did not invite them to Rambouillet in 1975, and they invited themselves. Uh, they've shown up. So they've been a, a loyal uh, member and committed to the G7 for, for a long time. And they've been, you know, able hosts uh, yeah. in the years that they've they have hosted, you know, obviously the current government in Rome has raised some eyebrows and concerns about some of its uh, positions or the leader's uh, really statements before she was uh, prime minister. Um, and so I think there's some questions about, you know, exactly what they're going to prioritize and how they're going to move the agenda forward. But I would expect them to be loyal stewards of the G7 um, and uh, to drive forward a lot of the things that were achieved in Hiroshima or, or laid out as, as agenda items from the Ukraine-related issues, which, you know, obviously Italy feels strongly about that as well, the China-related issues. By the way, Prime Minister Maloney has indicated some shift in uh, Italy's. Italy was the only EU member, I believe, which signed on to, or at least the, the only G7 member, which signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative, China's big initiative mm-hmm. under the previous government. Mm-hmm. And she's indicated that she might revisit that and, and move away from that. So, so on China, she's got some. She's uh, stuck within the Ukraine consensus too. 
And that's right. So so I think there's all of that. And then, you know, I expect them to move forward the development agenda, including health and food is a big issue for them because they've got two of the UN agencies in Rome. So I, I think there will be a robust agenda and I expect them to be good stewards of the organization next year. All right, Matt, we close all of these podcasts, ask our guests the same question, which is what gives you most hope and optimism? Not asking me for my my musical choice. I was in a podcast the other day where they asked me to off the spot to name a track of my favorite music that that fits the occasion. Um, so thank thank you for not asking that because I always go blank. Um, gives me most hope. I mean, I do think it's the it's the new sense of common purpose in the G seven uh, since Ukraine. I mean, it's a, a a pretty faint silver lining in a otherwise very cloudy situation. But but it's important that these uh, advanced industrialized democracies have have been pushed together in to deal with that issue but also to have the possibility of working more constructively on some of these other critical global issues that they had frankly been sort of drifting on for many years so i'm i'm hopeful about that thanks for making the time today this has been really fun thanks for having me thank you for listening to the common health if you enjoyed this podcast please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.